Welcome to the ABC Music Talk podcast, end of year wrap for 2021. As regular listeners know, the general idea behind this podcast is education through storytelling for anyone interested in the music industry. So I decided to go back and pull out a quick lesson that each of my guests over the 13 episodes of 2021 passed on to us. But first, it's time for me to remind you all to go row to your videos. Rota is for artists, managers, labels, or anyone in the music industry who needs to create video content for promotion or monetization. Rota makes it fast, easy, and inexpensive to do all of that in one place. Head to www.abcmusic.co and click the Rota logo on the homepage to access a 10% off discount for the service. In this first episode of the year, the amazing Remy Harris introduces us to her book, Easy Money, The Definitive Guide to Funding Music Projects. The clip you're about to hear is a great lesson in how some of our seemingly everyday experiences can have a material impact on what we go on to do with our lives. There was something that, that, that you experienced as you, were, as you were working through that that has had an impact on on the book that, that we're going to talk about. The genesis of it sort of came from that, or were you aware of the idea of writing the book at that point? You know, I wasn't aware when I was at AIM that a lot of the knowledge that I was developing and a lot of the skills I was developing would be so useful to me later on in, in what's ended up being my, my self-employed career, um, running my own business. And yeah, I mean, one of the things that happened was I mentioned to you day one of AIM going in and you know having no, no infrastructure in the office and just starting something from scratch and at that time because I was the office manager um and I'd had a holiday job in a bank I was put in charge of the accounts um so I had to start raising invoices and I was you know calling up people at labels that were the accounts person at labels going how do you do this and how do you do that and just learning as I as I went along and teaching myself and working alongside AIMS auditors and learning that side of the business. Partly because of that and partly because of me starting to make contact with people at the Arts Council, if anybody phoned up that had any kind of finance question or anything to do with getting funding, they would be put through to me. And I didn't know that much about it. Probably what I knew about it could be written on two sides of A4 at that time and Fun, I would funding people <laughs> need it yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um and, 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 and at that time really you know very few if any of the AIM labels were accessing any kind of grant funding or anything like that they you know it was only really I suppose as the pressure um in terms of the value that that labels were able to get from recorded music um, started to bite, that people started to look for other avenues to find um, investment to support their artists. And at that time, I started to... At that time, I started to talk to labels um, about how they might connect with the Arts Council, how they might apply for funding, all, all sorts of questions people would phone up with as well. You know, my distributor's gone bust. Unfortunately, that was a frequent call that we got. Or, or should I spend yeah. this money on marketing? Where do I spend my marketing budget? That kind of thing. So really, AIM was really a lifeline and a helpline, as well as a community that labels could call, artists could call with their 
questions and problems and we designed all of our training and mentoring scheme and different support programs around the day-to-day needs and responding to and anticipating the day-to-day needs of, of the labels. So later on, when I left AIM, I was at UK Music um, and that's another story how I got there, but I ended up um, being involved in some campaigning in the last recession, 2008, 10. Ah, so, so many fond memories, eh, of the <laughs> recession. Oh, no. uh, the, which was the, the credit crunch recession, it's known as. Yeah, um, no, I remember in, it, yeah. So involved in campaigning around access to finance for, for labels and the wider music industry and getting really involved in that, that campaign, which eventually led to the need to write the book or the drive to write the book about uh, music funding. Again, I think an important takeaway there for, for listeners is you never know where the, these ideas are going to come from. I mean, you know, th- this is you seeing a need almost unwittingly and then realising that actually through some of the other sort of practical experiences that actually there is a real gap here, that, that you know, this, this needs to be done. Um, and, and as I say, it, it's a fantastic book. It is, I think, accessible to, to anyone, but, but doesn't fall short of its goals of, of informing people on, on how to approach funding, which is great. In this lesson, newly appointed Chair of AIM, Nadia Khan, tells us about an early experience she had that led to winning her first management client, Lethal Bizzle. When I came to London, I had this plan that I was going to do PR for a good number of years, build up my contacts and move into management. But having met Bizzle, I really believed in him and his like where he wanted to take his career. So I kind of kept putting myself forward for a manager and I'd never managed anybody before. So he was a bit like, are you sure? (laughs) Can you do this? I was like, absolutely, I can do this. Um, But he ended up getting signed to another record label and they actually stepped in and was like, absolutely not. She can't, she doesn't have any experience. We're going to bring another manager on board. So I had to work really hard for the next few months Um, I started shadowing the manager going to all the meetings again really annoying made myself super indispensable took everything on and three months later you know I was pretty much doing the job and the other manager stepped away and um, I got a well uh, I spoke to Biz I was like well can I be your manager now (laughs) have I and he said well you know what if you can get me a live agent then you've got the job. So he kind of set me a challenge to do. Um, And I got him a live agent within a couple of weeks and secured myself my first management client. That's amazing. Uh, And so the the, the manager that you were were shadowing for a while, I mean, was that that a pleasant experience or was that something that... um, wasn't and they, and they didn't really want you around and like they would do anything to try and get out how, how did that manifest itself the management shadowing the manager was a great experience um okay, i think it was just the record label were just the ones that just didn't want me involved because they didn't believe in me but mm-hmm. the manager was really happy to have an extra oh, pair brilliant. of hands and um that i was just writing everything down and i was just making myself available to do everything reminding them of everything um so that was a really great experience but okay, good I wanted the actual job and yeah, I sure. knew that I was doing a lot of the work and I knew the vision so I felt like I was driving a lot of it anyway I felt like it was just um, you know you have to have the big name and you have to have the big company behind you to be taken seriously at that time 
Well, I guess also the record company is investing money into this artist and they want to make sure that, that you know, that the other stuff that they don't do, because they're not the management, they are the record company, is, is going to be looked after properly. So you can sort of understand their point of view, but I, I just I love that scenario of them sort of, whether they allowed you to sort of have that experience of shadowing someone or not, whether they saw it ending up like that, but the fact that that worked out the way it did, I mean, what a, what a great sort of on-ramp into that role. You. Definitely, but I don't think that yeah, labels should have that say. You know that it doesn't happen nowadays. I think a lot of managers and artist relationships come from um, friends and mm-hmm. close associates with um, artists who don't necessarily have a lot of experience in the industry. Sometimes, but you know, management is built on trust and it is built on that passion and that drive and that vision oh, as well. So um, you know, I do think uh, yeah. It, you, I don't think people should be judged like that, you know, when they're starting out. I think it's also a struggle for people to get taken seriously in their careers when they're starting out. The third episode in 2021 was with Kamal Moo, Janet Jackson's entertainment lawyer, talking about his book, The Straightforward Guide to the Music Business. In this clip, he teaches us about the importance of the human side to doing deals. What should people consider when they're looking at recording deals, publishing deals, or naming rights deals? Like, what, what are the sorts of like early bits of advice you might give to someone? Uh, the one thing I tell all my clients as a threshold question is: consider the people you're working with that, that you're thinking of working with. Look at their reputation. Look at their level of enthusiasm. Um, you know, are they going to follow through? Are they making promises that you believe they can keep? Um, I've definitely been in situations where artists will sort of talk themselves into signing with a label, even though something felt wrong or it didn't seem like a good fit. Um, you know, one exa- one example was I had an independent artist who um, she had a, she got offered a record deal from an independent record label. The contract was excellent, great numbers, uh, but when she signed the deal, nothing happened for two years. Then she just sat around. Um, so that's what it's about. I think that's the real just basic threshold question you know do you believe that they can deliver on their promises and what's their reputation um so i think that's the first thing you really need to look at when considering any contract so sort of focus on the on the human side of the relationship rather than the kind of the nuts and bolts of it Right. I mean, just because you sign with a label doesn't mean your career is going to take off. I mean, there's lots of people on major labels who don't go anywhere. Um, and it's all about, yeah, just finding the right fits and the level of enthusiasm and them understanding your vision. Um, so, yeah, that's that's all. It's all trick. And it's just the intangible stuff. You can't really quantify exactly um, what feels right, but it's a, it's a gut thing. Um, so that's one thing I tell my clients. Our next lesson comes from Superpass founder Juliana Mayer, who makes a statement that can often get lost in amongst the rush to put a record out. Let's not forget about the music. I have this little phrase that that I I have on this podcast. The only important things are the the artists uh, and their fans, and and everything else is either getting in the way or enhancing that relationship. And so Superpass clearly sounds designed to enhance uh, rather than get in the way. Yeah, and I think you, you've you hit the nail on the head there with the the two most important things is the artists and fans, but I think there's actually three most important things. It's the artists, the fans, and the music or the content itself. I think that so often we all get so focused in the music industry on the marketing and driving traction, and we we kind of lose how we can really just be creative and, and focus on that. And so to give you a little bit of background of kind of where where all this came from, 
It was actually really based around that. So I was an artist running my own label and I was actually frustrated that there wasn't enough focus on the content and the music itself um, because you know you'd record an album and then you'd have to go and promote it and then you'd be writing other songs but you wouldn't get around to recording those until the initial excitement of recording them was kind of you know already stale because you'd been out there you know promoting all the stuff you already recorded a year ago so it was really about this drive of okay well if you're writing stuff how can you and you know it's been wonderful actually during lockdown seeing a lot of artists actually doing this now it's wonderful you know you can write something the same day you can just record it and and then just put it out with a unexpected release and uh, we've obviously seen some big artists doing that and there's some small artists that have been doing that for a long time and I think creating an environment where you can really, really focus on the music itself and maybe it's not just the music, maybe it's also the videos you're making, maybe it's the podcast you're making. Obviously, they're massively uh, growing now in popularity for you know a lot of artists and also in the music industry, people making podcasts. Um, and if you could focus more on who's, li who's listening or watching that, that content and how are you going to get more opportunity to create more, that's really what we're about. So we join that direct connection. And it's, it's not just between the artists and their fans because actually we work with all the stakeholders. So it would be the artists, their management, their label, the publishers, you know, that, that whole ecosystem. I think sometimes people think, oh, this is, you know, really kind of separate to that. But actually we work with the whole ecosystem of whoever's behind the music. So when I talk about the artists, actually I'm talking about all of, all of those um, and creating a place where you can really create a home for those super fans. And that's really what this is about. You've got a wonderful opportunity through the streaming platforms and through live shows and through social media to grow that audience. But then what happens to that top one to 10% of your most loyal fans, those super fans, and are those social media platforms really delivering what they need? And that's really where we feel it's a bit broken in the market that, you know, for example, on Facebook, you've got to pay Facebook to boost your post to actually let more than 10% of your, your followers see what you're posting about. So loads of fans miss tour announcements or important announcements because they, it literally hasn't shown up. So that is definitely not catering to the needs of super fans. So what we're doing for artists is creating a space that isn't instead of those activities, it's as well as, but it's not extra work because it's integrated with the whole ecosystem. So it integrates with, you know, it's, it's all the content that's already commercially released. It's, it's also a place for putting a bunch of stuff that doesn't actually have a place online at the moment. So, you know, whether it's archives or rare um, bootlegs or, I mean, in, for some for some of our um, artists we work with, their fans actually find bootlegs and, and then send them to them to, to add to the app um, because there's stuff that the, the artist didn't even know existed. You know, it's really, really interesting how um, it's kind of a place where fans and artists can come together to just interact more on the stuff that really matters to them. This next lesson from Paper Chain founder Dan Dewar talks through a problem he identified in the music industry and a reminder to us all there is often another way to solve problems by taking a fresh approach to them.
Okay, so as I mentioned in my intro, uh, to me, at least, uh, Paper Chain is, is the most exciting implementation of DeFi in the music industry to date. So can we kick it off with a quick overview of what Paper Chain is, if you like the elevator pitch for the business? Sure. I mean, at most simple, we just call it, it's a wallet and card funded by a streaming revenue every day. Um, so we've been looking at this problem of what has happened in streaming media and media in general, and this huge shift in consumption behavior where the ability to distribute and monetize content is instant, the ability to consume that is instant, but then the revenue and the payments hasn't kept up. So thought a long time about what data we can access to make that happen, what technology can help that happen. And we found this really nice stack that we can build on, particularly within the decentralized finance space of making it possible where artists and creators can now get paid immediately or at least daily uh, for the content that they're generating revenue on. Okay, and so just uh, maybe maybe start to break that down a little bit more. And very specifically, we're talking about identifying revenue that they are going to be due and, and it will arrive at some point, um, but uh, they haven't got it yet and there's a reporting cycle and that's a bit of a delay. And so you're, you're kind of solving that middle bit. Is that is that the best way of describing yeah, it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if you're an artist and you're generating income, uh, we're just tapping into data that is uh, being generated, your streaming data. We can accurately price that uh, and then make that available to you instantly. So all that you feel is that you now have a product now or a digital wallet that is getting funds deposited daily based on your actual streaming activity and you can access that through a card or you can spend it, you can withdraw it. Um, pretty soon you'll be able to earn interest on it. It's just about putting a really simple product in front of creators that makes it possible for them to now access their revenue as they earn it, rather than either waiting for it or having to go in and get an advance or a long-term loan. Sometimes lessons come to us when we stop and listen to ourselves. Careers coach Ariane Paris talks through her own example that led to her current role in the music industry. I came to a point where I started to feel really dissatisfied with my job as, as a promoter. So it had been a dream job for, for nine years, but the last few years I started to feel really unfulfilled. Uh, I felt really trapped. I felt completely guilty as well to be in that position that so many people would die for. And I just wouldn't enjoy it anymore. I would listen to all these DJ mixes, um, feeling like, okay, it just all sounds the same. I'm not even excited to book a new artist anymore. And um, what was happening, I, f I feel that what I had a calling. So my soul literally was calling me to do something different, to do something more meaningful. Because for me, my job wasn't meaningful anymore. It had, lo it had lost it, its sense of meaning. And I think you cannot live without meaning and purpose in life. And maybe this is something we can talk about a little bit deeper later. And um, so, yeah, like I, I thought the... I was really comfortable in, in where I was. You know, I knew to do how to do my job really well. It was a comfortable position. And for me, the pain of staying comfortable was greater than, than um, the pain of not following my soul's calling. So um, I decided to retrain. So I did a uh, professional coaching training. And what I wanted to do really was to bridge the gap between my new passion with personal development and 
the industry that I love so much, which is the music industry, and help people from this industry because when you work in light life, as I'm sure you've experienced as well, you can be a witness to a lot of people burning out, a lot of substance abuse, you know, like there's a lot of imbalances in this industry. So I really wanted to help people from the music industry and share what I knew and help them on their journey uh, so they could um, create uh, the life that they wanted and, and feel better and perform better. Next, we hear from Merlin CEO, Jeremy Sorota, who passes on some very sage pieces of advice. It starts with me asking him about whether his career path, which as this interview reveals, in recent years has jumped around a bit. I asked if it was accidental or a predetermined plan. You know, someone once asked me once, what, what's your favorite job? You know, what, what have you enjoyed the most? And I gave an answer that was completely honest, but, you know, especially for folks who may be early in the career, it may not make as much sense, which is every, every job I've had at each component or each stage of my life has been my favorite job. And the reason why is each one has been sort of a component of like what I've wanted to, to learn, the ways I've wanted to grow. And so let, let me give a little bit more context to what you, you mentioned, which is, so my, my career trajectory was five years at a large global law firm where I was a technology lawyer focused on primarily on the intersection of content and technology. Uh, and, you know, uh, I did that um, with a lot of, you know, software companies, early SaaS companies, a lot of content companies working in the... Uh, digital space, which back then was still very nascent. And then one of our clients was Warner Music Group, uh, who had an opportunity to do, oh God, I, I, was, I was trying to think of numbers, probably almost 200 deals, or different matters, you know, not every one of them was a licensing deal, uh, on their behalf, and I worked with their technology teams, I worked with their IT teams, and I worked with their biz dev team as well. And I then went to Warner Music Group, where I was there for nine years, and it was a, so we can get into that, but an evolution of my role there. And then I joined the Facebook music team. I was the, the fifth person to join that, that team. Uh, and I was there for two years. And if this opportunity with Merlin had, hadn't come along, I probably would have still been there because it was a really great experience, great people to work with. Uh, but each one of those elements of my career, to come back to your question, really was so critical about where I was sort of at that time in my life and what I was able to learn uh, from those experiences, the people around me that I was able to um, just gain a variety of experiences. But when I've thought about my career, you know, I don't, I, it really to me, and this, this may not seem obvious on the surface, it wasn't jumping around. It was actually a very clear uh, growth pattern about what I wanted to learn and where I wanted to go. And, you know, just to hit on a theme that I think is super important that I even talk about internally at Merlin with the team is, you know, no one is going to invest in your own career as much as yourself. And taking a very proactive stance and um, leaning into that, and and because it takes time and energy, right? It's really difficult to think, what do I want to do? Where do I want to be? You know, what does my life look like? You know, what does my day-to-day look like? Who am I working with? Right, all those are really hard questions. 
And the earlier you start thinking about that, the better. And just one more little story I'll share, which I think, you know, I find interesting, is everyone warned me not to go to law school. Literally everyone. From my family to my friends to uh, others who were lawyers. And they all had different reasons why they, they said that. There's so many different paths you can take in life. Um, I was originally thinking about getting a PhD. Uh, and the reason that convinced me um, based on that advice is I said, okay, if I'm going to become a lawyer and all, so many people are, are, are sort of waving red flags at me, I better have a very clear path in mind about what my career is going to look like over a long-term uh, trajectory. And I think that, that just sort of those signals from them actually really helped set me on a course of thinking more long-term. This next lesson from DistroDirect founder Andy Irwin demonstrates how evolutionary changes in the music industry are the reason why we need to stay open-minded in how we make commercial decisions for our business. So why do you think people want to run their own distribution service? Like, What motivates them to do that instead of, as I've sort of said, you know, go to one of the many options that are out there? Because it's the whole gambit, right? I mean, there's DIY, you know, pay-per-play type of distribution, and then obviously the whole sort of range of straight distribution through to those that have got the label services as, as a sort of main focus. Like, what, Why do they come to you, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question because I think the way that we just explained it a little bit then, the way that the market has been moving recently is that everyone is becoming, is upskilling and having to become skilled in so many different facets of the industry. So, you know, you know, everyone is almost running their own little label, regardless of whether you're a single artist or you're a traditional label or, you know, you're a PR or a music tech. I mean, you know, the, at the end of the day, you know, what drives those outcomes for artists is, is being able to to get their streaming, you know, to get on their playlists and do all that sort of stuff. So people are having to find ways to do that outside of the old methods of A, signing a record deal or B, you know, hoping that their distributor is going to be out there promoting their music when they've probably got 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 other priorities that week. Um, so people are having to get really savvy about sort of cutting through all that noise. So, you know, the good managers are building the, the networks with the DSPs themselves or, um, you know, good PR companies are building networks themselves and so forth. So what we're finding is that, you know, through necessity, a lot of these companies are building out that label services without really intentionally having done that as their goal when they may have started out but they turn around and they review what they've done and they realize well actually we can do this ourselves pretty well we just need the infrastructure to be able to scale it so you know i use the example of say a management company who um you know they can they, they have the resource to maybe you know properly manage five or ten artists um, but, you know, at that point, they get so many demos coming through every month, but they can't physically do anything with them because they can't sign every band that comes over their desk. But, you know, they've built this amazing network that they can actually help all these artists. They just don't quite know how and they don't have the ability to manage the assets, to do all the financial reporting for their royalties, to be handing off their streaming data to them, to be able to, like, you know, for them to give access to their catalogue. So... Um, the reason that we built the DistroDirect tool is to for companies like that that can say, well, 
I, you know, I've got all these amazing networks, but I just don't have the tools to be able to really capitalize on that. So what if, what if I could take that five or 10 artists and expand it to 20, 30 or 40 or 50 artists that I've got that I'm looking after? I don't need to sign every single one to a management deal, but I can bring them in. I can give them advice. I can help them out. I can provide them with some marketing tools or some kind of basic entry level stuff and get them in the platform and, and, you know, use the strength of my business and my company to try and drive some outcomes and secure that artist. And if things go really well, of course, you can upstream them into a label deal or something like that. But, you know, managers, you know, they don't necessarily need to be experts in distribution to use a platform like ours because we do all the hard work. Again, it's coming back to that building the relationship side of things. So that's where it becomes really important to be able to, you know, provide that tool, but also realise and understand that, you know, there's so many great music businesses that have all these connections that, can use those connections to scale, they just need the right infrastructure around them to do that. Next, follow some Rudy Sage advice from Nick Sadler, owner of The Label Machine. That is so important to remember, I wanted to make sure it was highlighted in this lessons-based end-of-year wrap. Why advertise and, and what, what what do you advertise? Like what, what do we talk about when we're doing paid marketing? Yeah, so I guess I guess a, a, another thing to to take note of is um, it's not it's not hard to reach out to, you know to, to get noticed and have an audience um, if you're gonna if you want to if you're going to invest in it. It will be hard to get noticed if you're trying to do it for free. Right, if you're trying to do it for free, or even like, you know, and by free I mean you don't want to put any of your own time into it, or any of your own money. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a key thing because some people are like, oh, I put this music out, and you know, and I, I did an Instagram post, and no one's listening to it. And it's like, well, you haven't invested any of your time or any of your money. Like any business, you know, your music career is your business. All businesses you have to invest in, and and more than money. You, sorry, more than time. You definitely have to invest in money. Your music career is a business. If you don't invest in it, it won't be a success. Full stop. Rule off. So that's the first thing. Like you want to make sure you're prepared to invest. And while I say you can do it with just your own time, I mean you're going to be working sixty-hour weeks. And the best thing I can say is have a budget. You know. Um, be a hybrid musician, you know, even if you have a day job or a part-time job in which you do something unmusic related, save that money up, you know, don't, you know, eat, drink less Starbucks or whatever, buy a cheaper pair of shoes, put that pot into it so, you know, you can save up, you know, a, a, a grand even or even a couple of grand and go, right, now I'm going to use that to um, promote my music and grow my audience. And like, if you've even got a grand, that is that is plenty of money to get you know, tens of thousands of plays on Spotify. You know, everyone wants to break that 10,000 barrier. If you've got a grand and you follow the process, that is no problem whatsoever in today's world. Yeah. Anna Zoe from Italian Music Conference Line Check provides a great lesson on why it is important to make sure that when we operate in the music industry, that we do so with the understanding that the part we're directly involved with exists in amongst so many other people, companies and organisations across a variety of industries. It's 
at lunch this year, for instance, we are going to have like a, um, pitch sessions and pitch carousels uh, for this company to present themselves in front of potential uh, business partners or uh, like what we are going to have this year as a news as well. It's, it's going to be like a line check X which is going to be an exhibition space where both like startups uh, but also like more established company can have their um, spot uh, to, to be presented and like to talk to people and to uh, showcase what they are doing, not just like a, uh, a poster, but like actual showcasing what they do. I don't know, for instance, we have this super nice company working with the immersive sound associated to uh, VR uh, so they are developing cool projects with VR, but also with the immersive sound. So it's going to be in this space. It's going to be possible like to experience their products, for instance. So it's not just like a, a fair, but it's actually like a, a see and explore and experience like what these companies, these projects, these people are trying to uh, market. Yeah, and, and this was one of the things I was really interested in about the the, uh, the design exhibition when you, when you talked about it, because yeah. it, it also, this isn't just a sort of an industry-only type of event. You, you are encouraging the, the general public to kind of come in totally. and see what's going on in, in terms of innovation. It's sort of almost in real totally. time. Yeah, I, th- I think that's really, really interesting. Is there much of a sort of like feedback loop, like in terms of like, you know, when the general public comes in, I mean, other than, I guess, maybe talking to the founders of these companies, I mean, do you, do you ever sort of think maybe the, the conference could be used to sort of really help these businesses, you know, take on board some criticism from, from the general public? Of course, yeah. but that's that's totally the idea. I think like right. this kind of space, like uh, as the as the line checks audience is very is very different, like uh, it's very diverse. Like of course we it's mostly made out of uh, professional people, like uh, people that already work in the sector. But it's really not just that. Like it's really like every year like for instance we have special uh, partnership and special deals with universities because we really want to encourage like uh, students and like people who wish to work in the music sector and maybe they're not yet working in the music sector like to come and to see okay maybe uh, you know you you have a when, when when you're not really within the sector maybe you think that like the music sector is managed by three companies and that's it so either you work there or like you work in in a bank or in like in something else but it's really not like that and it's always more and more not like that anymore uh, because there is like such a variety of um, of of people and of companies and of startups that like are also looking for new professionals and maybe uh, that's also a meeting point uh, for, for them like to, to to onboard like new people and to find like different kind of profiles of professional profiles that is not just uh, anymore like uh, an A&R or a talent scout in a label because it's not just that anymore so line check is really a meeting point for different people with different backgrounds maybe not just in the music sector because like for instance this year we also welcome always thanks to a european project like um that aims at the called creative shift and that aims at the, uh, supporting the cross-sectorial dialogue between music gaming and media 
and publishing in the sense of book publishing. So um, thanks to this project, we are going to welcome in line check like a, a, a very big delegation of professionals that are working like in different fields. And that's very, very interesting for us because music is increasingly more connected to other cultural and creative fields that are not just music. So that connects to gaming and connects to media, but also with the books, for instance, with the publishing sector. So I think like what this space aims at um, encouraging and uh, stimulating as well is also this kind of uh, of dialogue and this kind of contamination between different profiles, different sectors, different levels of establishment and um, recognition within the industry. I like this next clip because it is a lesson to us all not to prejudge a situation. In this case, Magda Hollist from Artists in Bloom describes how pleased she is with her experience of the music industry conference line check, where I'm sure so many might roll their eyes at a conference trying to say that they're doing things differently to others. I'm for the first time at line check. That, that has to be said, and I'm super surprised with the level of the conference. There are many interesting topics and many interesting panelists. So, and like you know, I, I'm I'm meeting here and discovering here the things that were said before. That conference is looking for new ideas and is very forward-thinking and is trying to really answer the questions that are really relevant these days. So I can I can say for sure that I'm finding this on the conference on this conference and this is because it's not always like this at, at conferences. I, I, you know I, exactly. What I yeah. Mean. Well, the, I mean, this is what I learned when I interviewed Anna from Linecheck uh-huh. on the show. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm so so pleased to sort of like be yeah. here and to experience it because it's hard to really truly understand. It. So uh, yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing that. In this next clip, we hear part of an episode almost all about lessons learned. As a former successful artist manager for Umek, Vaza Weber, now founder of music analytics platform Vibrate, talks through what it felt like to have to relearn his pitching skills. So, so you joined this accelerator. To tell us a little bit more about what that was like um, I believe that uh, you you might have felt uh, in a when you walked in the room. How did you feel? <laughs> yeah, that was the thing because you were in amongst some other entrepreneurs, weren't you? Yeah, it was. Um, we're quite old to be a part of the accelerator. Because <laughs> you know we were what? That, that was the word I was trying to tease out of you. I'm glad you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah. So I was I was in my late thirties. Omek and Mateo were way in their forties. And usually the typical member of an accelerator is an entrepreneur in their teens or early 20s. Um, and when, when we walked in the room, people thought that we were mentors. Um, they, Umek <laughs> is a superstar in our country, so everyone knows him. And they, they also knew us because we were doing a lot of uh, electronic music events. Um, we also had a more... Um, event marketing company that was doing corporate events for huge clients like Philip Morris, uh, Vodafone. Um, and yeah, so we, we were like semi-known. So they, whether they went to our parties or they only make, and they thought, well, they're, they're probably going to have a lecture here, which wasn't true. And we said, no, we're just a part of the accelerator with our startup. And we had to learn everything yeah. from scratch. 
Right, okay, well, I mean, what was that like? I mean, because, I mean, when you're so accomplished in one particular discipline, to then sort of put your, I guess, ego aside, anything you know aside, and just be a sponge for, for new information. How, how did that feel? What was it like going back to school? Well, it was, the first thing was that we were, uh, we knew how to pitch corporations. Um, because having a marketing agency, you have to pitch a lot of clients um, to win pitches. And uh, it's a completely different way of pitching a corporate client and pitching a VC. And another thing is, if you have to pitch a world famous DJ to, let's say, a new talent agency, it's a piece of cake because everyone wants to work with them. So when 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 we were with Umek, when we were switching agencies, when I went to Lynn Cosgrave, um, to uh, Safe House, my, my, my old mentor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it was it was quite easy. So the basically the pitch was: so this is Umek, and we're switching agencies. Would you like to take him? I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> that was it. So it it was it was it was a completely different world, and persuading investors that they should invest their money and trust you 100% with their money, even though they don't know you're a perfect stranger to them, it's, it's, it's much harder than one might think. And so we had to forget everything that we learned in, in the past few decades of our, um, of our work in, in marketing and music management. And so we were just on the same level than those teams learning everything from scratch and but it was it was a nice learning experience we learned a lot and yeah it it, it made us who we are now our final lesson of the year comes from soundtrack your brand founder ola zars it is another about observations we make in our careers and how some brilliant opportunities are sitting right under our noses What I realized when when I was at Beats and um, I started, Jamie started sending me to talk to brands for some reason. I had no idea. I'd never done B2B before, but I realized that there were brands and business around the world that, you know, obviously used music for different types of enhancements of their experience, which isn't new. I mean, we all know background music and as an old crappy DJ, you would know that when you, you have a good night out, you're doing... And, uh, you know, we're really, really contributing to that bar's experience and business. So after getting the question a couple hundred times from different people, like how can we relate to music streaming? How can we use music to, you know, enhance our customer experience in our cars, in our dealerships, in our restaurants, in our in our brand environments, online, social? It's like, okay, there's a whole business to business market here for music streaming that I had no idea existed. And then the second notion I realized was, it's big, it's big. It's it's a huge channel for music that I've never thought of before. Um, so back to your question around data, um, the, the driving force in the music industry, just to be very you know cynical and pragmatic, sweet, it's making money and breaking artists, or the other way around, breaking artists and making money. That's basically what drives the industry. And hopefully the, uh, breaking artists uh, could actually also contribute to paying artists and not paying the middlemen. So that's, once again, um, what what makes me get up in the morning um, and feel good about myself. I'm actually, I'm not solving cancer, but I'm actually, you know, bringing in more value from the art of music to the people who actually create it. Uh, how I connect this to my quest into the B2B market was that it was when I realized B2B is a market for music streaming as well, but it was completely broken. 
it was a huge black box, dysfunctional, corrupt, where music royalties just disappeared, basically, or were distributed based on no logic whatsoever. And it was a huge market because B2B markets, you know, it, usually when you look at industries evolve, there's a consumer market and then there's a B2B market. Usually the B2B market is basically as big as the consumer market in terms of value because you're extracting more value per customer. So I thought that would be an opportunity for the music industry to incrementally grow as well, adding B2B and fixing that broken market space and adding transparency and fair compensation uh, to artists and songwriters into that market. So that's kind of the underlying reason I did it. And back to bringing transparency and increasing value extraction from music, meaning that we're charging $35 per our semi-interactive subscription and $50 for our on-demand subscription for businesses. And I don't see a lot of examples of people actually being able to, to charge more for music right now. Everyone's talking about giving away music for free in the metaverse. <laughs> I was thinking about how do we monetize that? How do we bring it back to, you know, someone's trying to survive on their art? So, so there's the making money in terms of doing it in an incremental market opportunity from the business market and then transparently and fairly flowing through those royalties collected on a higher value. That was amazing opportunity when I realized that. And then the other one, you know, breaking artists. Then I started looking at, all right, there's around 100 million businesses playing music in the world, in, in, in Western economies every, every day. And there's around five to 600 consumers walking in and out of those um, commercial or those venues. And I started thinking, that's, uh, that's, that's big. You know, and I was like, wow. And then I started thinking about it. That's a huge music discovery uh, dimension that we all know about, but we've never really thought about from an industrial perspective. So I started looking at that. And then this research we just released, and we can get into that later, just, just one figure is that in the U.S. standalone, there's 91 billion store visits every year. You know, people... Uh, the U.S. consumer or a citizen walks in and out of stores multiple times every day, which is a potential music discovery uh, event. And you know what? 79% of those actually pay attention to the music. And so hence the word background music is 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 legacy now. It's not background music. It's, it's music in the foreground. It's moving, moving it to the foreground. And then the last number, and I'll be quiet, 73% of them who actually hear something of those 79% that like it search for that song they google it or they use Shazam or they try they ask uh, the person in the counter what's this song so here we are uh, this B2B opportunity that can bring more money to music creators on a higher value uh, also providing a huge promotional opportunity Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this special end-of-year wrap-up and that maybe it acts as a signpost back to some episodes you previously enjoyed or missed altogether. The ABC Music Talk podcast will continue on in 2022 and I already have a good few interviews lined up, so make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss any. Also, if you're feeling charitable, please do leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, a big shout-out to the incredible audio assassins who provided the music branding for the show. Thank you for listening. Music.